Life Downtown. It's good to see you this morning. We want to say hi to anyone that is watching online this morning. We love you. We miss you. We hope in the future, if you're able, that you'll be able to join us in person. If you're not able for any reason, know that our hearts are with you this morning. We so greatly appreciate you joining us online. If you're new or newer this morning to New Life Downtown, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. My name is Jason Jackson. I serve as the pastor here at New Life Downtown. New Life Downtown is one of the eight congregations of New Life Church here in the city. We are a non-denominational charismatic church that's deeply rooted in the history and tradition of the church. So in our service, you'll hear us welcoming, asking, pleading for the Holy Spirit's work to come and move among us and coming to communion and reciting prayers as we want the full life of the Spirit uh, to meet us in moments of Spirit leading and in moments that have been means of grace for the church throughout its entire life together. We would love to get a chance to meet you if you're new. Uh, there's a guest card that you can scan here uh, on the screen. So if you take a moment, fill that out during the service or drop by the welcome area after the service. We'd love to meet you. And in just a couple of weeks, we have uh, what we call New Life Next. It's a welcome lunch for anybody that's new, a chance to get to know you, for you to get to know us and to ask any questions that you have about our life together. So our next New Life Next will be on September 10th. Uh, so just two weeks from now, right after this service, free lunch over at the Commons at the corner of Boulder and Tejon. We'd love for you to join us. But now as we once again center our hearts, as we once again turn our affections, we turn our attention to Jesus, to the one true God, to the Father, to the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We open today with the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. The words are going to be up on the screen so that we all pray the same version together this morning. Let's pray as we turn our attention to him. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen, amen. Would you stand and let's sing, worship our God together. Good morning, church family. It's good to be with you guys this morning. If you're able, I invite you to stand with us as we prepare to worship the Lord, our God and King. He's a good God, and He deserves our highest praise. Amen. Come on, let's put your hands together like this.
We've sung of his might and his power. And let's turn our attention to the cross where his love was displayed. There was a moment when the lights went out and death had claimed its victory. The king of love had given up his life. The darkest day in history. They're on a cross they made for sinners. For every curse his blood atoned. One final breath and it was finished. But not the end we could have known. For the earth began to shake and the veil was torn. What sacrifices made as a
for that. The Lord deserves our, our biggest applause. Amen. In, uh, in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 9 it says understand therefore that the Lord your God is indeed God. He is faithful. He is the faithful God who keeps his covenant for a thousand generations and lavishes his love, his unfailing love on those who love him and obey his commands. What a good message to be reminded of. Every day we go through things, good stuff, hard stuff. But God, as the, as the young people say it, God still be Godin. Okay? I'm still getting it. I'm still getting it. There's a new song we're going to sing today. And as we continue in worship, I just invite you to remember that the God we serve is not a new generation God. He's not a new ideas God. He's the same God that held our hearts, <laughs> that held us together, that held his people together way back when. He's the same God that saw Noah through the flood, right? He's the same God that saw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego through the fire. He's the same God that healed and delivered the blind and the sick and the lame and the deaf. And he's the same God that's doing those same things today. And because we have faith in God, because we have faith in the one true God, we believe and we know that he loves us now more than he ever had. But he loved all his people. Generation after generation, he loved his people. And so as we sing this, remember that God is the same God who's healed, the same God who's delivered. And we call upon his name. We trust him. We know that he is a good God. Let's sing this together. And I'm calling on the God of Jacob whose love endures through generations. I know that you will keep your covenant. I'm calling on the God of Moses Are possible. 
Throughout our lives, we have moments of real clear realization of our need. There are other moments we live a little bit unaware of how desperately we need God. And then other moments where that desperation, that realization of our need becomes so acute that it's all we can see. And we live our life somewhere in the middle of that spectrum from day to day, deeply, desperately aware of our need for God, we're unconsciously sort of unaware of it at some point. But the invitation when we recognize our need is to put our faith in God's faithfulness. To put our faith in the God who has been faithful from one generation to the next. The God who's been faithful from the beginning, who is faithful now and will be faithful to the end. And this morning, I just wanna take a moment. If you are acutely aware of your need for the God who is faithful to show up in your life in some way. Would you raise your hand just for a second and those that are next to, to you, would you just lay your hand on them today? And we wanna ask that the faithfulness of God would become evident in the midst of the struggle. If you, need, if you need God's healing this morning, if you need breakthrough, if you need presence, if you need clarity, if you need wisdom, if you, whatever you need, Raise your hand, those around, lay your hands on them, and let's just ask the faithful God to meet us. Jesus, we once again are gathered here in your name to put our hope, to put our trust, to put our faith, to put our everything into your faithfulness, to remind ourselves that you have been faithful from one generation to the next, from the very beginning of time to the very end of time, from the beginning of the story to the end of the story. The story is a story of your faithfulness. And we just coming back to you because we have nowhere else to go. 
And we want to say, we trust you. We need you. And we ask you to meet us in the same way that you have met your people throughout space and throughout time. Across the world and across time, you have shown up in ways that cause the people of God to say, oh, this is the same God. This is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. This is the God of Sarah and Rebecca and Leah. This is the God of David and Daniel. And this is the God of Ruth. This is the God of Mary. So God of our ancestors. Show up now. Reveal your faithfulness now. Bring healing to those who need healing. Bring hope to those in despair. Bring clarity to those in confusion bring help to those in struggle bring freedom to those in addiction bring recovery to those with hurt bring all of you to all of us once again because we need you and we're aware of it help us God we pray in Jesus name and all God's people said amen amen you may be seated this morning I want to invite the Friesen family to come up for a child dedication today. Our faith is a generational faith. As Pastor Jen said, it's not a new faith. It's a faith that has lasted through the generations. And we're all here because someone who was faithful shared the gospel with us. And then that got passed down from generation to generation. Someone shared with them, who shared with them, who shared with them. And one of the main roles of the church is to pass the faith that we have received on to the next generation. And that is not something that's just the task of parents. Yes, that's the task of parents. But it's the task of the whole church to surround the kids of the church, the students of the church, and to say we as the people of God, as your extended family, are surrounding you with the gospel. And we want to help you walk in the way of faith. And so we do child dedications as a way to remind ourselves of what we have received and to remind ourselves of the mission that God has placed on us to surround our kids with a community of faith to teach them to walk in the way of Jesus. And so we get to do that once again. <laughs> with the Friesen today, hi Ingrid, how are you? <laughs> this is Bjorn. Bjorn, Caleb, Friesen. Some of you know Becca and Caleb. Becca is back on our staff after having taken a little break for this one. And been longtime members of New Life Downtown. I'm going to be a mess today, you guys, just all day. So... Please bear with me. Um, they went through long struggle with infertility and wondering if the dream of having kids would ever become reality for them. A long, dark nights of the soul. And leaned into prayer and leaned into community and cried out in desperation and explored every possibility and the wonders of modern medicine. <laughs> We now get to celebrate the life of these two and this family together. 
And so we know that that's a lot of people's stories, that for some, the, the dream of family seems very elusive, either through being single and, and wanting to be married and not, or being married and wanting to have kids and running into challenges. And life can be incredibly difficult at times, especially when the dreams that we've, hold, we've held onto for so long seem to just escape our grasp. Uh, and then there are moments in surprising ways, sometimes unexpected ways, that God shows up for us. And Caleb and Becca have offered over the years to say, hey, if there's anybody that just wants to know more of our story, that wants to talk about the struggle and the way that God showed up for us, please come and find them and, and talk to them. They would love to share with you more. But today we're gonna celebrate and pray over Bjorn and the wonder and the beauty and the mystery of his life. And so to you, the members of New Life Downtown, I ask you, Will you as the church family commit to surround this family with the love and grace and truth of the body of Christ? Will you stand with them in prayer? Will you speak the truth in love into their lives? Will you serve them in humility and encourage them in the word of God? Will you receive Bjorn as a blessing from the Lord to be instructed, protected, and blessed in this fellowship of believers? If so, say by the grace of God, we will. All right, Becca and Caleb and family and friends, the crew from, uh, I don't know if you know this, we have an extension site, New Life Manitoba, uh, where Caleb's family streams our, our services on Sunday morning. We're an international congregation and they get to be uh, here with us today. The church, <laughs> the church receives Bjorn with joy. Today we're trusting God for his growth in faith. So I ask you, Will you draw him by your example into the community of faith? Will you walk with him in the way of Christ? Will you care for him and help him to take his place within the life and worship of Christ's church? If so, say by the grace of God, we will. All right, we're going to preach the gospel or beyond. Then Pastor Catherine is going to pray for him. We're going to anoint him with oil as a sign of the mysterious work of the Holy Spirit already at work in you, buddy. Oh my, that's a good yawn. Yeah, breathe in the breath of God. <laughs> so Bjorn, for you, Jesus came into the world. For you, he lived and he showed God's love. For you, he suffered the darkness of Calvary and cried out at the last that it is finished. It is accomplished. For you, he triumphed over death. And he rose to new life for you. He ascended into heaven and he reigns at God's right hand for you. He will come again to set all things right, to bring resurrection and new creation. And he did all of this for you. But you do not know it yet. But we're here to tell you all about it. And we look forward to the day that you come to know the love, the grace, the truth, the wonder, the beauty, the mystery, the love of God revealed in Jesus. Pastor Katha, would you pray? Stretch out your hands toward them, family. Lord, thank you. We just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you for this beautiful gift, Bjorn. Thank you for Becca and Caleb for their desire to have a child, God, and thank you for answering their cry and their prayers. 
Thank you, Jesus. And God, I just pray over Becca and Caleb as they raise Bjorn in a Christ-filled home. Would you, almighty Lord, rain down in their family, fill their home with your very presence, fill their very being with wisdom and your grace and your mercy. And I pray that they will speak the life and light into Bjorn. And Lord, may they be beautiful examples of the love that you have for Bjorn. And God, I just pray over Bjorn, thank you so much for who he is, for you knit him together in his mother's womb. And we know that that is a gift and we know that he is yours. And God, dear Jesus, we just pray that as he grows and he discovers who you are, I just pray that in your perfect timing, may he be captivated by your great love and who you are for him. And may he know that he is yours and you are his forever. And God, I just pray that he will live a life of faith and be a mighty, mighty warrior of God. And God, I just pray for the church, Lord. Thank you for this community. And I pray for everyone in our congregation that we will come beside Caleb and Becca, Bjorn and Ingrid. And may we speak words of life and light into their home, into their very being, God. And may we give them encouragement and support when they need it. And just celebrate with them today. In your mighty, precious name, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Just celebrate with the Friesens this morning. Amen. There are two really practical ways in which we can live out the words that we just spoke. One is volunteering in kids and student ministry. It's never too late and there's always a need. So if you're looking for a place to serve, please stop by the discipleship area in the lobby and say, hey, I'd like to help come alongside kids and students and their families to help them know in the gospel of Jesus. Second way is through your tithes and offerings. Your generosity makes all of this possible. Our kids ministry, student ministry, the ways we come alongside uh, parents and families. There are four ways to give. You can give online or via the app. If you're giving online or the app, please make sure you select New Life Downtown as your congregation, uh, or you can mail it in, especially if you're watching online, or there are boxes in the lobby uh, outside these middle doors if you have a cash offering that you'd like to give today. And now we turn our hearts and our attention to the Word of God and ask the Spirit of God to speak through His Word today. Let's quiet our hearts and ask Jesus to make His voice known and clear to us today. Good morning. My name is Debbie. Hi. The, the Old Testament reading is found in Deuteronomy 12, 1 through 4. These are the regulations and the case laws that you must carefully keep in the fertile land the Lord, your ancestors' God, has given to you to possess for as long as you live on that land. You must completely destroy every place where the nations that you are displacing worshipped their gods whether on high mountains or hills or under leafy green trees. Rip down their altars 
and shatter their sacred stones, burn their sacred poles with fire, hack their gods' idols into pieces, wipe out their names from that place. Don't act like they did toward the Lord your God. The word of the Lord. morning. My name is Bob. The New Testament reading is found in Paul's letter to the Romans, the first chapter, verses 2 through 4. God promised this good news about his son ahead of time through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. His son was descended from David. He was publicly identified as God's son with power through his resurrection from the dead, which was based on the spirit of holiness. This son is Jesus Christ, our Lord. The word of the Lord. Hello, my name is Kay. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading, which is found in John 10, 7 through 11. So Jesus spoke again, I assure you that I am the gate of the sheep. All who came before me were thieves and outlaws, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. They, the thieves enter only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came so that they could live, could have life indeed, so that they could live life to the fullest. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing with me as we pray this morning, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We do ask today that you would speak through your word. Jesus, you said that we do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So would you feed us today? Would you nourish us today? Would you strengthen us today? Would you enliven us today through your word and by your spirit? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you, New Life Downtown. Uh, before we dive into the text today, I want to give you an update on the journey that our family has been on. Uh, for those of you who may be visiting today, uh, for the last four or five weeks, uh, we've been walking through a really difficult time uh, dealing with the complications from an abscessed appendicitis that my oldest daughter, Cora, suffered back in uh, July. So we've spent 23 out of the last 32 days uh, in the hospital and walking through this time with her. I shared with you a little bit uh, where we were last week, that we'd had a, a really major surgery and uh, things were starting to look up a little bit. Uh, and then on Monday, 
Uh, her pain increased drastically and she spiked a fever. On Tuesday, they discovered that she had new abscesses of infection that had developed in her abdomen. Uh, so Tuesday night, they transferred us up to Denver uh, to the children's hospital up there. And then on Wednesday, she went through uh, an, uh, a couple hour procedures to have some drains inserted uh, into the abscesses to try to get the infection out. Um, so it's been a really, really hard week. Um, walking through that with her, continuing to see her suffer um, and experience uh, quite a bit of pain. Uh, we started to see some small, small movements for just the last um, couple of days. Uh, so on Friday, she's had a, a tube running from her nose down into her stomach for, uh, it was for eight days um, that made it very difficult and painful for her to talk. So we didn't hear her voice uh, for eight days. And then on Friday, they were able to pull uh, that tube out and she was able to begin to talk again. Uh, and then that enabled them to also start giving her some oral pain medicines uh, and a little bit of water. So that seemed to have helped with the pain. The pain's gone from, you know, kind of a resting pain of five or six, a uh, walking pain of seven or eight, uh, down to a four as of yesterday. Uh, she was able to take a little bit of a walk, uh, and then she's on hopefully getting to start some clear liquids uh, today to sort of just keep moving forward. But Sarah is up with her uh, in... Denver today, we're just kind of taking shifts uh, back and forth here for the next little while. We don't know how long uh, that she'll be there, but we appreciate all of your prayers, all of your kindness uh, to us during the season. And Sarah and Cora, we love you. Um, and, and miss you this morning. I was, I was not going to share this, but felt like I should during worship today. Um, that moment when they pulled that tube out of her nose. Sorry for the graphic nature of that picture. Um, and hearing her voice for the first time in eight days, I just, I wept, wept and wept. And as I've thought about that moment for the last couple of days, I wonder how God feels when he hears his people pray. Um, when we have those moments sometimes where it can be really difficult to pray or long seasons where maybe it's hard for us to talk to God. And generally what we feel in those moments is a lot of guilt. And, and that guilt sort of keeps us from like, oh, I don't know if I can pray anymore. But I wonder how elated the Father is every time he hears our voices. When we pray, when we worship, when we sing, when someone comes back to him, when someone risks singing a prayer to a God they're not sure that they believe in. I wonder how delighted and elated the Father's heart is. And then the other picture that I had was a picture of the resurrection. And I wonder the joy that we'll experience in new creation and resurrection when we hear the voices of our loved ones that we've lost in this life. There's been a lot of loss in people's lives. Some of you have lost children some of you have lost spouses. Some of you have lost moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas and brothers and sisters, those who've meant so much to you. And in that moment of resurrection, God brings life back to our bodies and raises us from the dead. I wonder, I mean, the there's profound joy in that moment. But the, the joy of hearing our loved ones' voices again. 
will be one of those moments that I just can't wait for. <laughs> and to see the joy in other people's faces as they hear the voices of their loved ones again. Oh, let it be, Jesus. Let it be. We're starting a new series today, finally. Uh, we're a couple weeks delayed, but we're here. <laughs> From now until Advent, we're going to be in the book of First Kings in a series called Kings and Kingdoms. First and Second Kings were originally one book. Um, so, you know, if you're reading them, you're like, these chapter breaks and things that are weird. It's because they were one book. And then when they were translated into other languages, the scrolls got too long, so they had to separate it into two scrolls. Uh, and trying to read a book like First Kings, you're only getting, you know, half of the book in general, but you're only getting the second half of a bigger story about the monarchy. First and Second Kings are a sequel to First and Second Samuel, which really were one book as well, kind of the rise of the monarchy and the stories of Samuel, or Saul and of David. And even that book, First and 2 Samuel takes place within the larger framework of the Old Testament, the larger story of Scripture. And so when we dive down into these books, we can start to read them and go, I don't have a clue what is happening here. I just don't know. As a kid, um, my favorite radio program, for those of you who remember radio, um, was uh, a program called Paul Harvey and the rest of the story. Uh, Paul Harvey was this radio guy. He'd come on and he'd start telling the story. And then at some point in the story, he was some, some surprising new information about a very well-known story. For those of you who are more podcast people, it's a bit like Malcolm Gladwell's Revisionist History, where you're going back into something that's really known and familiar. Like, I know these words. I know these people. I know this this story. It's known. And yet, Paul Harvey and Malcolm Gladwell and others bring up this sort of surprise to us. We're like, I didn't know there was more to know about that. They make some unknown known, provide these additional details or background materials, and it just fills up the story. There's now new depth or new nuance or new perspective. Something that was known and familiar becomes altogether new to us. And those are stories from our worlds, things that we already know and understand. The book of Kings is not from our world. It can be hard to follow, and there are all the background things that, we, uh, that go missing for us when we try to read it. We have to cross, when we're reading the Old Testament, what my professor Sandy Richter calls the Great Barrier. And these stories took place a long, long time ago in a land far, far away from here called Iowa. I mean, Israel. But, you know, kind of like Iowa to most of us. There are historical and cultural and linguistic and geographic barriers that we have to overcome. There are things that we're just like, I don't get this, even as it's translated for us into English. For example, Kings is not a modern political history written in a language that we know. It's an ancient theological history written in Hebrew. And so even that is a barrier that we have to overcome in order to understand. So what I thought we'd do as we start the book of Kings is to not read anything from Kings this morning. Um, but instead, look at three passages I think are really critical to understanding the weirdness of what's happening inside of this book. And those are Deuteronomy chapter 12, 
Deuteronomy 17, and 2 Samuel 7. I'm gonna go through them kind of in the order they appear in the canon and largely summarize them and encourage you to go back and read those chapters uh, later on this afternoon, this evening, tomorrow, whatever is uh, good for you. But they deal with three really key concepts. The first one, Deuteronomy chapter 12, deals with the centralization of worship. That there is a huge emphasis in the Old Testament around the centralization of worship in Jerusalem, that God shall be worshiped in this one place. The second major idea that is in the background of kings is the conduct of the king. Deuteronomy chapter 17 talks about what the people of God should expect from their leaders. And then the third passage, 2 Samuel chapter 7, deals with God's covenant with David. So the centralization of worship, the conduct of the king, and the covenant with David are all things that any ancient reader would have had in their mind as they read this book, and it would have caused things to pop for them, going, oh, that's what's a deal by telling the story in worship. Deuteronomy 12 is in Moses' second speech to Israel before they enter the promised land, and the largest section of that speech deals with the Ten Commandments of Moses kind of going back to each of the commandments and telling us more about them. The commandments here in focus are, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall not make any idols, and you shall not misuse my my name. It's about right worship, who this God is and how this God wants to be worshiped. And the idea is that when you enter into this new land, when you settle down, the instruction that was just read for us is that you shall destroy every worship center that has already existed in the land. All the places where the other nations have worshipped, all of their rocks, all of their poles, all of their temples, all of their places of worship, go ahead and destroy all of them and instead search out the one place that God is going to place his name. It's kind of like an ancient idiom for raising a flag where God is going to claim as his own and worship God there. Then the chapter goes on and details exactly how this God wants to be worshiped. In other words, God is saying, I want to be worshiped here and in this way. Deuteronomy 12 tells us where and how, and specifically says not there and not in that way. It says this in verse four, don't act like the other nations did toward the Lord your God. Don't worship me in the same way that they have worshiped their gods. Why does this matter so much? Why is this so important to God? Let's remember, here the Israelites are coming out of an extended period of time of slavery where they've been living in a land of polytheistic pagans, where people lived and worshipped in ways that were contrary to who God is, worshipping all these multiple gods. Now they're moving back into a land where there are polytheistic pagans, people who are worshipping these multiple gods. And what they did was they associated each of those gods with a limited sphere. This god was the rain god. This god was the wind god. This god was the sun god. This was the childbirth god. This was the death god. This was God. And you look at God in some way. And so you have these multiple gods, and each one of these gods wanted to be worshipped in ways that were connected to their sphere of influence and what people believed to be true about them. So the way they worshipped was a reflection of their theology. So gods of different things wanted child sacrifices 
God's wanted these things. And God's like, you're not going to worship any of those gods and you're not going to worship in those ways because Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is saying, I'm an altogether different God. I'm not confined to one place. I'm not confined to one sphere. My power is over everything and you're going to have to worship me in different ways because I'm not like that. In other words, worship must be consistent with the character of God's. It must be consistent when you worship God for who he is, not who we want him to be, not who we think he is, but who he has revealed himself to be. So the goal of this centralization of worship is not just a bunch of like, oh, fussy, I'm trying to control things, but the goal of the centralization of worship is to teach Israel how to worship rightly. The goal is fidelity, to worship the one true God in the way that he wants to be worshiped, in a way that's consistent with who he is. And throughout the book of Kings, throughout the Old Testament, we see is that every time Israel starts to move away from worshiping in Jerusalem, where there's a decentralization of worship, idolatry starts to take off that they begin to worship other gods or they begin to worship God in ways that are inconsistent with his character. We see this most pointedly when the kingdom separates from one united kingdom into two kingdoms. And the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, their king Jeroboam sets up two worship sites and immediately in those places puts a golden calf, makes an idol and starts worshiping God in ways that are inconsistent with who he is. And throughout the book, the way that kings are evaluated, one of the ways that they're evaluated is, did they tear down the high places? Did they tear down these other places that people were worshiping? And so for us, something like this, we then have to stop for a moment and go, well, what does this have to do with me and here and now? It invites us to ask questions about our own worship. Is the way that we worship consistent with the God that we claim to worship? Is the way that we worship consistent with the God that we claim to worship? More importantly, is our worship consistent with the way that God has revealed himself? So when we think about things like our life of prayer, is our life of prayer entirely transactional? then we will talk to God only when we need something. And if God doesn't deliver what we need when we think we need it in the way that we want it to be delivered, does that then stop our prayer life? And if so, what is that telling us about what we believe about God? Is this in some way suggesting that God is some sort of divine vending machine? And if we put in the right amount of faith into the machine, kick it if it doesn't sort of, you know, produce the diet Dr. Pepper that I so desperately need in this moment, I'm going to look for other ways to get my needs met. They're outside of his. Is our prayer life consistent with who we believe him to be? Is our prayer life simply us talking to him or are there moments where we say, okay, God, we know that we desperately need to hear your voice as well. You delight in hearing ours. But what we really need to do is hear yours. When we come to reading scripture, are we reading scripture only in those moments where like, I just, I need to figure something out, God, so I'm gonna open this up and point and just speak to me because I need some wisdom right now. 
Are we reading scripture only as a way to confirm what we already think and believe to be true about everything? And the way that we read the Bible is really just taking all of our Western American 21st century ideology and putting it on the text and say, see, God thinks the same thing that I do. And we read the Bible in a way that says, God, you are the holy king of the universe. This is your word, and I need you to read me. I need you to reveal places in my life that are inconsistent with your way in the world. What is the way that we read scripture? What is the way that we sing, that we pray? What does it tell us about the character of our God? Is it consistent? Deuteronomy chapter 17 is the second background package. It talks about the conduct of the king. It says, when you enter the land and you settle down, what you're probably going to do is you're going to ask for a king. If you give a mouse a cookie, then you're probably going to do this. If you give Israel land, you're probably going to ask for a king. And Moses says, you can have one. But the king is going to have to be different than everything that you know. You can worship, but not like others. And you can have a king, but that king can't be like the other nations. And he goes on and says the king must be divinely chosen by God. There's going to be no campaigning, no coups, no coercion, no any of those things. Instead, God is going to select the king for you. But of course, what do we see throughout the whole book of Kings? Coups and coercion and campaigns and all of this infighting rather than following the way of God. So we mean grasping for power, garner power to maintain control. Moses says, that's not a core. Establish good relationships with them. And silver and gold, wealth were about economic power. These were the ways in that world, and probably not altogether different in our world, that people tried to garner power in order to control the world, in order to control the outcome of things. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, another really important passage, when the Israel does get to this moment of crying out for king, Samuel says to them, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to warn you that here's what's going to happen. Your kings are going to take and take and take and take and take. They're going to take everything they can from you in order to get military, political, and economic power, and they are going to make you their slaves. And what do we see happen in First and Second Kings? The kings take and take and take and take to get military, political, and economic power. But Moses says it shouldn't be that way. Deuteronomy 17, 18 says, instead, this is what they should do, that the king, when he sits on his royal throne, he himself must handwrite a copy of the instruction of the scroll. They must copy the entire Bible themselves. (laughs) Make their own copy, but do it in the presence of Levitical priests so they don't change anything. And that instruction must remain with him and he must read it every day of his life so that he learns to revere the Lord his God by keeping all of the words of this instruction and these these regulations by doing them and by not being overbearing toward his fellow Israelites and by not deviating even one bit from the commandments. The king is supposed to submit to the word of God, to the will of God. We'll see in the, uh, in the text, this is typically around the instructions, the Torah and the prophet, the word of God coming to the king through the prophet. And the king must live in service to the people of God. The way of the king should be the way of obedient love. 
leaders in the scriptures must do the will of God in the way of God. They must do the will of God in the way of God in order to lead people to the worship of God, in order to lead people in the way of God as well. And kings are evaluated by this metric and this metric alone. They're evaluated by faithfulness, not by polls, not by prosperity, not by power, not by political prowess. They're not evaluated by any of those things. Instead, every king is evaluated by, did they do what was right in the eyes of God or did they do what was evil in the eyes of God? Regardless of how much prosperity and power and those things that happened, did they do what was right or did they do what was evil? Kings all throughout, they crush according to those, metri- those other metrics, but they get evaluated negatively. Others says they did what was right in the eyes of God. And sometimes we'll say, just as David did, which we then kind of go like, wait a minute. <laughs> David? David's got issues. Severe issues, massive issues. David is not someone that I would look at and say, yeah, let's like do everything that David did. He violated Deuteronomy 17 on multiple occasions. He took and he took and he took and he took. And there were significant repercussions for him and for his family and for the nation for all of those violations. The scripture does not gloss over those things. What the scripture is recognizing when it says they did was right and like David did, they're trying to point out a couple of things. Number one, David repented when he was confronted by the prophet. David did repent And secondly, David was particularly committed to the centralization of worship, to making sure that Yahweh was worshiped in the right ways, just didn't always work itself out in his life. We'll come back to him in in, in a minute. But what about us? When we think about our leadership in our relationships, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our churches, when we think about our leadership, when we think about what we prize in leaders, those that we elevate, those that we praise, those that we vote for, those that we lift up in some way. What are the metrics that we use for the success of our lives or the success of others? What are the metrics we use when we think about relationships, when we think about resources, when we think about careers, when we think about bodies, when we think about possessions, when we think about platforms? What are the metrics that we use? What are the metrics that we use in the church What are the metrics we use in the business world? What are the metrics that we use in government? Do we think about charisma? Like, oh, that's just the most important thing. It's charisma. Is it competency? Do we say, well, they just do a really good job so we can forget everything else? Do we think about compatibility with the things that we value? But but yeah, we can excuse all the other stuff because they stand for this one thing that I also stand for. I recognize that those things matter. Competency matters. Compatibility matters. Values matter. All of those things matter, but we too quickly sacrifice character on the altar of competency. We sacrifice character on the altar of so many things. We do it in our lives and we do it in the lives of our leaders, but the Bible has one metric for success, and it's faithfulness. Well done, good and faithful servants. And that's holistic. It's doing the will of God 
in the way of God, not just one or the other. We shouldn't bifurcate them. We shouldn't say, well, you know, but that, that is the right thing. The right thing done in the wrong way or the wrong thing done in the right way is not something we should settle for. It's the right thing in the right way for the right reasons, the right motive, the right hearts. This is the evaluation of the book of Kings. Second Samuel, the last one, is the covenant with David. When David became king, he established his capital in Jerusalem. And 2 Samuel 7 says that David got in and he settled into his palace. The Hebrew word there is the word house. And he says, I'm living in this beautiful cedar house and God's still camping. He's still in a tent. So I'm gonna build God a house. I'm gonna build God a temple, a house for God. And then God tells Nathan the prophet, no, David, you're not going to. You're not going to do that. Instead, it's going to be one of your offspring. And instead, the prophet comes to David and says this to him in verse 11. And the Lord declares to David that the Lord will make a dynasty. The word there again is house. Will make a house for you. When the time comes for you to die and you lie down with your ancestors, I will raise up your descendant, one of your very own children, to succeed you. And I will establish his kingdom and he will build a temple for me in my name. And I will establish his royal throne forever. David says, I want to build a house for you. And God says, no, sorry, I'm going to build a house out of you. I'm going to build a dynasty. God promises that one of David's offspring will reign forever. This is referred to as the Davidic covenant. God enters into a covenant with David. A covenant is a treaty. It's an agreement. It's a promise to act in certain ways toward one another. And the critical component of any covenant the glue of the covenant is loyalty. It's faithfulness. If either party in any covenant is disloyal or unfaithful and nullifies the covenant, unless the other party decides to be faithful anyway. Unless the other party decides to continue faith, the promise to David, they are a hot mess. <laughs> and God continues to be faithful. The story of the entire Bible is a story about God's continued faithfulness to all of us, despite our repeated unfaithfulness to him. The good news of the gospel is that God is faithful even when we fail. That God is faithful even when we're faithless. That God is faithful even when fill in the blank. The good news of the gospel, the good news of the story of God, the good news of First Kings, the good news of any book that we read is that God is faithful even when we fail. And the interesting and surprising thing about the scripture is the way that God is faithful. The great surprise, the great sort of turn, the great Paul Harvey, Malcolm Gladwell sort of moment in the entire scriptures is that when Israel's kings fail, when David's house fails, when David's house falls, God does not give up, wash his hands, start over and say, ah, forget about it. They just can't get it together. Instead, he takes his faithfulness to a surprising level. He decides not just to keep his side of the covenant, but he decides to keep our side as well. God enters into the world as a descendant of David. Jesus, 
the son of God, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus comes as the true king. Jesus comes as the faithful king. He comes as the one who does the will of God in the way of God to bring all people into the worship of God. He comes as the king who reigns by giving rather than taking. He comes as the king who reigns by dying in order to save others instead of killing people to keep his throne. He comes as the king who is the powerful one, who's all-powerful, but comes to love and to serve others who instead of claiming something as his own, takes off his robe and washes other people's feet. He's the king who reveals the true character of God, the surprising God who comes as one of us to save us, who remains faithful and then when we can't be faithful, he comes and is faithful on our behalf. And so as we come to this table today, as Blake and the worship team come forward, we come into this room every Sunday and sometimes the thing that we're most aware of is our own failure. Today, you may, you may be here and feel like a failure. You may feel like you're falling you're failing, that everything in your life is falling apart. You may come in today and feel like your faith is feeble. You may be fully aware of all the moments of faithlessness in your life. And my hope and prayer for all of us is that when we can be some so aware so in tune with our own faults, our own frailty, our own weakness, our own weariness. As we come to the table, we would instead be surprised by the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God, the faithfulness of God in our behalf would overwhelm us today. And we'd find as he meets us with his grace that our failures would turn to forgiveness that our feebleness would turn to strength, that our faithlessness would turn to fidelity, that our weariness would turn to joy, not because we found something inside of ourselves, but because the surprising God met us in surprising ways at his table. So friends, we now come to the table of the greatest example of this faithfulness, Jesus' table. This table is available to all who have chosen to follow Christ as Lord. And if that doesn't describe you, we're so grateful that you're here with us, that you're seeking after Christ in this space with us. And we encourage you to keep coming back, to keep asking questions and staying curious about who this Jesus is alongside of us. And if you happen to be ready to put your faith in him, as we all take a moment to confess our sin before Lord, before the Lord, we invite you to join into this prayer with us as we ask for forgiveness and trust Jesus alone for our salvation. Would you pray with us? Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone, we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. 
for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. So it's my joy to announce this good news to you. Word of not because of them, but because of what God has done Jesus. So open your hands and receive again the mercy of Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners. This is God's love toward us. So in the name of Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. The peace of the Lord with you. have been raised anew. Please take a moment to greet those of you. Share the peace you have in Christ with one another. Let's draw into these truths together that Jesus is here and his spirit is with us. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give him thanks and praise. Would we do that together in the room today? Praise the Lord together. It is a good and joyful thing to give thanks to you, Father Almighty. You formed us in your image and you breathed your life into us. When our love fails, your love remains steadfast. When we were unfaithful, you sent your son to be faithful on our behalf. And on the night that he was handed over to suffering and death, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread. And when he had blessed it, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this for the remembrance of me. And so in remembrance of your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we proclaim the mystery of our faith. Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. This table is a place of remembrance and encounter, and this season we're singing a prayer to ask the Holy Spirit to meet us. Let's sing this prayer together. I'll invite the servers forward at this time. people of God, you and feed on him in hearts by faith and with thanksgiving. So if this is your first time here, we just ask if you can't make it to the table, ask someone beside you to bring the elements back for you. And if you're in the balcony, we invite you to come and join us up front as well. And if you need more instruction, there's a QR code you're welcome to scan. Just follow along and let's continue worshiping the Lord in this moment as he's been one who's shown us such great faithfulness. Let's worship God together.
Free. 